Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome Simon Tofield, creator of Simon's Cat, which recently celebrated its 10th anniversary. Good day, one and all. Welcome back to another episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Ah, <laughs> I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. How's it going, Steve? Hello, Ben. How are you? Um, who saw this coming? Literally everyone. Mm. Actually, for the part... Let's just dive into this. There's no point in, in feigning a preamble. Yeah. For the last five months, I have been certain that John Christopher Lucy was spotless. Like, that he was a saint. Because surely five months ago, this article that came out, you know, the other day would have come out. Mm -hmm. I guess there were some things that needed to be ironed out. So it takes a little longer. Yeah. So it wasn't a surprise that there was this sort of sense of like for for quite a while, like, well, if anything was going to come out, then, you know, now would be the time. And I guess, you know, hey, here we are. We are, of course, talking about two-time squiggly podcast guest, John Creasfalusi. Yeah. Creator of the Red and Stimpy show, one of my favourite shows ever. Mine too. And uh, various other cartoons that I actually don't hold in particularly high regard. So there's been a BuzzFeed article, hasn't there, uh, that's, that's, you know, by uh, Ariane uh, Lang, um, in which uh, uh, two, uh, I suppose you could say, people who used to work for, uh, for John K., uh, Robin uh, Bird and Katie Rice, have uh, well, they, they've they've made accusations about him. Uh, I suppose is the polite way of putting it. Well, they've told quite extensive, thoroughly detailed stories, citing email excerpts, and mm-hmm. his lawyer's like, "Yep, <laughs> that sounds like my client." <laughs> it's pretty comprehensive, <laughs> isn't it? And still, people on Twitter are like, "Well, where's the proof?" <laughs> like his f-ing lawyer just said he did it. You idiot. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Aye. Yeah, it, man, it is. It is a real. It's a horrific read. It was way worse than I think either of us. Like there is that that sort of glib thing of like, oh yeah, everyone knew he was, you know, a bit of a tomcat, and then it gets to some pretty dark places. You know, at that point, you know, someone isn't frivolously throwing allegations around. Someone's, you know, making a very specific declaration. And mm. it calls a lot of things into question. I mean, there has been actually, it's one of the most positively received um, examples of one of these kind of outings of predatory behavior in that I'm, there has been, of course, that predictable percentage of people who are like, for whatever reason, sort of arbitrarily defending this person they don't really know, but they kind of want yeah. to hold on to this idea that they're, you know, infallible or just misunderstood um, I, d- I don't know whether it's that. I think there's there's a few things that might uh, might go into place because uh, obviously we, we've admitted to being massive fans of Ren and Stimpy, and so when you hear that, you know, Christopher Lucy has been accused of this, some people because of their fandom of Ren and Stimpy might go straight into defense mode, straight into this kind of, well. Uh, how can I like a show by somebody who's done all this stuff? This is 
this is horrendous and they link themselves to it what does this say about me absolutely and and it's it is a it is a reaction it's not a very well balanced reaction uh but nonetheless it is a reaction that people have uh taken but the you know the the one of the horrors of the internet is that people can then go online and give all their opinions based around this rather misguided or misjudged response to this uh, these allegations. Well, one expression that I was introduced to this weekend and immediately was sick of, separate the art from the artist. F- shut the f*** up. <laughs> What the shit is that? For, uh, here's the thing. It's perfectly okay if, based on this, a person would never want to watch Ren and Stimpy again or anything John Chris Lucy touched. I'm not going to be the guy who demands the art be respected, even considering, obviously, I have strong personal fondnesses toward the show, what it did. I did a whole like podcast special a little while ago about it. Mm. Uh, I'm perfectly aware... It's a show that actually doesn't appeal to a lot of people, even without the whiff of behind-the-scenes sexual misconduct. It's very old, and it's f***ing weird, and it's gross, and like a lot of people would probably scrunch up their faces today, as many people did back then. It's not for everyone. I'm not going to defend it like it's the f***ing wire. It was something that appealed very specifically to me, because I was a weird little kid who loved cartoons that were... Uh, in the same way that I liked the meanness of Looney Tunes. It was it was the sort of closest equivalent to that. Hmm. The art of the show is a team effort. And there are lots of things about what Chris Lucy brought to the show that is absent from the seasons after he, you know, was dismissed that actually improve it. And this was the argument that went back for years and years and years. Oh, well, the show is shit after the John Kreese for Lucy seasons. It's not. It's actually, in terms of the timing, because his sense of comedic timing was abominable, the pacing of the shows got really good and quickfire, and they were much mm. more, they feel much more contemporary. This is, you know, not the important conversation point. I'm just getting it out of the way. The show mostly didn't have anything to do with John Kay from a very early point. They made three seasons without him, yeah. two of which hold up, I think, pretty good. The last season was not very good just because they had run out of ideas and it just em- ended on a whimper like many shows do. The animation isn't as good after he left, but and that's what people hold on to. I don't really think when people think of the the great animation of John Kay and they're thinking of scenes in Ren and Stimpy, I think for the most part they're thinking of scenes other people animated who left the show with him. Hmm. In the Ren and Stimpy special episode that uh, I put together, I interviewed a guy called Bob Jakes, and him and his partner, Kelly Armstrong, they both have, like, showreels. I don't know if they put them up or someone else put them up. Someone who was able to determine which shots they animated, and it's all the iconic shots in Ren and Stimpy, like the classic moments of Ren and Stimpy, the really extreme moments uh, that are the ones that I'm sure people think of. And, you know, there were plenty of others, that I'm sure, you know, it was just a matter of they were afforded, I guess, a lot more time to really nail down these really complex animation sequences because they were so behind schedule. Yeah. And, you know, when he left, the show wasn't always on schedule or the show wasn't always uh, beloved by the network. There were always issues still with it. It wasn't, you know, there was nothing quite so cut and dry. And I think that 
as I've mentioned a bunch of times, I think the best oral history to date is Thad Komarowski's book. There is a documentary being made. I have no idea what that will be like. I know they've secured a lot of interviews with some really amazing artists that I really struggled to get a hold of. I think the editor might have had a few calls about that during the weekend. Well, they, they sent out a thing because it was a crowdfunded thing. They sent out a thing to the crowdfunders about like, okay, we don't know what we're going to do. It's like, ne- it's nearly done. And mm. I think they should just release it. I mean, it, John Kay was never in the documentary, much like he was never in Thad's book. So, you know, maybe they need to add some stuff in at the very least, uh, or, the, you know, they could they could frame it in the sort of context of what had happened, you know, during post-production. I don't know. It's it's. I'm curious to see it eventually. Mm. But I, I also... It felt like the people who made the documentary just kind of picked Ren and Stimpy out of a hat because they wanted to make a documentary. Right. But I don't think they have that kind of emotional attachment to it. Yeah, it, it, it's... Hmm. There's the separate the art from the artist thing that you're talking about there. But the other, the other thing I can't quite get my head around is, you know, the many people in industry who said, I already knew. Now, that's a different statement to it's hardly surprising mm. because you look at his work and you look at stuff like the Sodi Pop character or any yeah. of that kind of stuff that he's done on his own post-Ren and Stimpy. And you can point the finger and say, well, there you go. It was it was there all along. So clarity in hindsight really kind of, um, you know, demonstrates this, uh, his alleged predilections. But I don't think I already knew as if I had this, ex- you know, I explicitly knew is a good enough excuse or something that people should be particularly proud of. Because there's a lot of people that are extremely proud to be able to say, oh, I already knew this. Mm. I said, well, that's that's not good enough at all. The position that we find ourselves on at Squiggly, as you said, we've interviewed him twice. He's been on the podcast twice. We had absolutely no idea. I had absolutely no idea that, you know, all I knew was was the, the kind of the Walt Disney to... to <laughs> Brendan Stimpy, he's the guy that created it, and I was interested to hear what he said. But, you know, it's it's a little bit um, shocking now that he's been given this platform by many places and abused this kind of trust within the industry. Uh, and, you know, we interviewed Chris Valusi on our third podcast, so it's, it's safe to say, Ben, back then we were not as uh, woven into the fabric of the industry in terms of, you know, finding out about what, what you know, the inner workings of the industry. Uh, or the rumours um, that before it was long before they entered our periphery, isn't it? Well, it was the book hadn't come out then, and the book was a real eye opener for me because that kind of that trans because I I think at the time I did the interview I was still pretty excited by the idea of him creating new work. Oh, everyone was. I mean that it, that was a shit show in itself, of course. Cans without f-ing labels which, quote-unquote, premiered Annecy two years ago. It didn't. He showed an unfinished version of it that he still hasn't shown to his backers. Like, that Kickstarter campaign is a ghost town. I, You know, he very earnestly in the interview talks about how the thing that always went wrong and why all of these other projects went off the rails is that there wasn't this direct 
line with the fans with the audience and now thanks to crowdfunding he had that immediate access and so there was no way he could let them down and it's probably one of the most legendarily unfulfilled kickstarters there has been Mm. since kickstarter you know came into existence and you know it's it's sort of marked by this blatant wall of silence toward the multiple multiple fan requests for something i donated and i got the thing i got my uh what's it incentive um perk it was just a little scribble he did he sent it to me so he kind of fulfilled it for me and the other thing was we all get like a digital version of the film so he didn't fulfill that end because that never got sent i was excited about the idea of a film that would do justice to that character because that character when it was in ren and stimpy the george licker character it was two of like the best episodes of the John Kreese for Lucy era of Ren and Stimpy, and it was like everything comes together. There's one where he's like taking Ren and Stimpy to a dog show, and there's another one where he buys them and he's training them to be um, uh, like guard dogs, essentially. And uh, that one never aired until about 10, 15 years ago with the, uh, the adult Ren and Stimpy's. And that, you know, you watch that and it's like, okay, this is as good as the old show ever was. This is like one of the the really high tier episodes. It's very funny, you know, top notch. It's really good, you know, timing, which was sort of rare. I think it was directed or co-directed by Chris Riccardi, who directed some of the better post-Jonquet episodes as well. So that may have had a part to play. Anyway, so you see this final sort of rough cut thing of Cans Without Labels at Annecy two years ago, and it's it's just a mess. And the audience was laughing a lot, but I, I, there is no victory in winning over an Annecy audience <laughs> at 11 at night, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. they're, they're hysterical. So going back to what you say about like we all knew, that sort of thing, my perception of what it was after reading the book was, okay, he is this kind of billy mitchell of animation like he's this sort of mad ego driven guy with a lot of hangers on that kind of reinforce that ego and you do i think believe you're very important when you have a little circle of people constantly telling you that uh and i revised that like after i read another book called the disaster artist which was recently made into an okay film uh and that's the book about the room and then I was okay, he's the Tommy Wiseau of animation in terms of what is absolute genius and brilliance in his head, how other people perceive that, how other people engage with that, what's genius animation and what's what he considered to be like bad animation, which he was always vocal about, is oftentimes really quite good and much more audience-pleasing than his stuff, which would get increasingly more and more challenging and frenetic and demanding of your attention in a way that takes it from being you're not being entertained anymore it's like you're being given an assignment mm. to sit through how every moment of this sequence is absolutely brilliant and so i i thought that was where the hot-headedness came from i had a completely misaligned view of the attitude toward women thing for a while because he was in bristol six years ago for encounters and that was an interesting one because he the, the rumor and innuendo was that he was this lascivious guy who would always sort of perv over his female interns. And that, I think, is why a lot of people don't find this hugely surprising is that was always the line of, of discussion around him on, like, 
message boards or whatever. And yeah, I, I didn't quite know how to take that. It struck me as odd that someone like Heihi Rice, for example, would have worked for him and continued to work for him and cited him as an influence. And that is how I found out who she was through the work she did on the very bad Ren and Stimpy revival. Her design work was really nice. And so I just sort of followed her career from that point on. She mainly does comics now. Uh, but, you know, it just... And then a few years ago, she made a comment on Twitter. It was a bit cryptic, but it was along the lines of how she was ashamed that she's actually in the DVD extras for Ren and Stimpy. Mm. And she wishes she could sort of, like, not be. That seemed a little bit telling to me. Like, oh, okay, maybe some shit did go down. Yeah. But when he was in Bristol, it was this odd thing. He was always surrounded, wherever he was, in the bar or in the lobby or wherever, he was always surrounded by this circle of young wannabe animators. They're all female. They were all fawning over him. And he was just sitting and drawing and sort of like giving them little comments about their drawings and stuff. And, you know, maybe because it was in public, he wasn't like... He certainly wasn't being like openly gross with them. And these were girls who were actually being quite actively, you know... They were falling all over him. Yeah, he's a charming guy. He reminds me a lot of a member of my family who's now no longer with us and he was never a, a creep but he was just very charming he was a fuck up but he was this very charming guy that everyone just sort of fell in love with and he just wasn't dependable so you know it wasn't until he was in his 50s that he was able to actually have a lasting relationship and start a family but his you know whole middle ages was you know just this guy being a sort of perpetual adolescent and that is i sort of maybe equated John Kay with him a little bit. Mm. And what I did also witness, other guys witnessing this harem of women around John Kay who were pretty resentful. There was this kind of like young male annoyance that the young ladies were into this other guy. And I was like, oh, maybe that's kind of responsible for some of the online innuendo. Like maybe there's a bit of butt hurtitis. Yeah. In hindsight, of course, that, that was obviously a kind of a glib conclusion. Now that, you know, you know, at least in two instances, things went too far or they went to the point where people were made to feel... Uh, it's a tricky thing. They're quite different situations with Robin's sort of breakdown of her relationship. It's very much a kind of in hindsight thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all kind of looked back at some relationships and we're like, oh, Jesus, that was f***ing toxic. Why did I put up with that? Not nearly as bad as what she sort of outlines. But there are some things where we just sort of, we just kind of muddle along at the time and then realize later on, okay, that shouldn't have happened. A, why did I let that happen? And why did so many other people let that happen? Yeah. The one I found a little bit more kind of, there was less ambiguity, I suppose, with the Katie Rye story in the sense that it's a more recent thing. It's fresher. There are like emails that are cited and are able to be sort of quoted from and it's 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 sort of sad in, in places, these kind of pathetic, sort of mewling, unrequited, what he thinks are perhaps sort of charming, like, advances. And the other alarming thing that a few people have pointed out, there were these other male artists who worked on the project, and they weren't intervening or saying anything. Yes. And you wonder, okay, how do you rationalize that? And their rationalizations aren't very good. Like one of them says, oh, well, you know, as an artist, he's unparalleled. First of all, slow down. 
<laughs> As an artist, he's okay. He's 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 done some pretty good stuff, but uh, unparalleled. And maybe that's sort of indicative of the way you know he kind of charmed the men who were working under him. What's been interesting is how Robin and Katie have been pretty okay with these other guys as sort of like reflections on it. Like they seem to understand why, and they I don't know. It seems like from what they've said that they're not too upset with them. No, they've even leapt to the defence of uh, Billy West and um, uh, and others because of you know they've been accused. You know the people in that early sort of John K. Ren and Stimpy era. Um, yeah. They've been clear. They've been clear to to clear the name of some. Yeah, I will certainly like yeah Bob Camp and Billy West and there's a like people who was part of the old Ren and Stimpy team wouldn't have had anything. I think really like I what happened at the time and it's you know I I know it's a very sore subject for the people involved but there was a big falling out that involved John Kay being in love with a woman who worked on the show and they split up and she ended up with another guy who worked on the show and they remain i believe a couple they're two amazing artists i think they you know they complement each other very well i know nothing about them outside of their art style to be honest uh and what fad i think mentioned in the book is how i know about that and i don't particularly care to know the details it's none of my business but it's what's sort of interesting you know this was there was no big age disparity but that, I think, was the big shit show at the time. And maybe that kind of, I don't know, was a catalyst for something later. Yeah, a lot of people were kind of giving the, the two younger guys a lot of shit. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. You just... For the same reason, like, at one, and at one point in the article, it's, it's again alleged that they find some pretty horrific stuff on his hard drive. And that that isn't immediately reported or brought to the attention of the authorities, that, to me, is kind of a big question mark. It's like, well, surely in that situation, surely you would do... And then it's, well, you just don't know, I guess, what you would do, because it's such a far-away, you-don't-plan-for eventuality. Absolutely. I think what she said was she would would go to report it and she'd keep panicking and and wouldn't follow through about what, I'm I'm not sure. But... uh, well, we're so far removed from from all parties in this yeah. uh, it, it, who've who've been you know either end of this experience that it's almost baffling that we could even <laughs> attempt to offer any kind of insight. It's it's something that we're just not quick to do, especially at, at this stage of. Well, you know, whatever happened, you know, it, it, yeah. it's an important thing to address, but but at the same time, it's still, you know, it's an allegation, and it's it's you know, and that's not in defence of anyone, but uh, it's important that we realise that we don't know enough, you know, we, yeah. <laughs> nor nor I think is it is it really our place to know. I'm you know more than happy discussing it on the podcast because you know at this point this podcast basically therapy for you and me isn't it you know <laughs> but i think i think for what squiggly is yeah, the podcast is more of an appropriate platform well absolutely it's it's a chat it's a it's a yeah. reaction it's a uh, a platform for that kind of thing but and it's something that people can weigh in on and say hey guys what about this or yeah 
or you you guys are talking complete bollocks. So like it's, it gives people, I think, more of an option to wade in. Yeah. And we can address that the next time. It's a time. conversation starter. That's, you know, it's, it's the conversation, yeah. the, you know, a, a conversation on that particular thing. You know, it is really shocking news, but there's no kind of, no matter how great Chris Felucci's part in in the show was or, you know, his artistry or any of that kind of stuff, there's no artistic talent acts as an excuse for alleged criminal activity. And it has really been disturbing to see people who've mistakenly believed that the attacks on Chris Felucci in the wake of this news drop-in are attacks on, on them or attacks on their favourite show. It's a real weird mess, isn't it, that, that this kind of news brings out in this kind of artistic community. Yeah. It's an odd thing to, to be talking about. Yeah, like I say, I if this means people are, are going to distance themselves from a 90s Nicktoon, <laughs> que sera, sera, yeah. honestly. <laughs> if it then extended to everything all the other artists worked on, that would be disproportionate and unfair, but I think that there's a lot of effort and legwork that would have to go into that. Mm. These are artists that have worked on the biggest IPs in animation. Yeah. And that's because they are all good. I'm sure they have skeletons in their closet and idiosyncrasies. It's been very fascinating to see some of the people coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know, stuff that they hadn't wanted to say for some reason or other. They There was this kind of weird fear of repercussion from some camp. And this is something that I, I think really kind of hammers home the importance of the article and the bravery of the article. And I think that, you know, the, the three uh, people who worked particularly hard to get it out there, the writer and the uh, two artists, should be quite proud of is it's taken their effort to get grown men to finally come out and say, oh, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, we knew. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to say, but yeah, he, he did kind of make life miserable for all of us. Yeah. And sometimes people, you know, make a bold declaration and it goes down quite badly with the public. And, you know, that's got to be a concern as well. Like this, it's, it's sometimes it's 50, 50. Sometimes people don't want to know why I was very, intrigued by the response to for example the Aziz Ansari thing because that was almost like a 50-50 split of like thank god this woman is speaking out and what the fuck is this woman speaking out about mm. that was just a shitty date and that was really enlightening like okay this is like a really interesting look at how people interpret the same information yeah and what seems really cut and dry to one group is actually riddled with issues and ambiguities to another mm-hmm. so with that in the air you do have to i think be very brave to just commit to no this was wrong and i have to stick with my guns so what, what you say there you know it is it's vitally important that we address this uh we you know <laughs> 30 odd year old white male incredibly privileged never had it better in society in life ever men address this because it's important for the people who go without a voice and have done so for many years to to have guys like us mansplain the situation to the masses absolutely my legs are so far wide open here and i'm I'm talking and i'm pointing my finger as i'm talking i'm letting them know exactly how it's done but it's but it's important that we take the opportunity ourselves to reassess the way that we might be protecting those that are in positions of abuse either unwittingly or worse still, complacently. And it's important that we protect those or, or allow those that need the voice to have the voice and to listen at least. 
um, you know, really protect and, you know, encourage those um, so that those that are abusing their position of trust within our industry are called out. Yeah. I think that's more important than anything. You know, I mean, I've seen a couple of dodgy goings on and it's it's not sat well with me so sort of, you know, within the the relatively local animation community. And I'm sure there are some people who are a little grabby and don't behave themselves. It's a strange thing to speak out against when you don't know the whole story. And, you know, there have been a couple of instances, you know, at festival parties and things like that, where I've kind of been like, hey, what the f*** are you doing? Or, like, asked the person who it's being done to, is that all right? Do you want me to talk to him? And in one instance, you know, it turned out that was the right thing to do. And this person was quite grateful that someone intervened. And in another instance that would have otherwise been identical, I kind of got the vibe to just mind my own f***ing business. You know, that's the other thing that we got to sort of consider is some people's help is not being solicited or it is considered condescending or, you know, out of place. But rather you take that kind of risk that, you know, on one occasion it worked, whereas on that occasion, had you not intervened or had somebody else not intervened or whatever, it might not have gone... No. People need to know that other people have got their back, basically. Whereas, like, uh, yeah, my uh, worst situation was I, I was a bit embarrassed for being nosy. Yeah. Uh, whereas the other worst-case situation would be someone, you know, well, it would have been a lot worse. Mm. And you also get a lot of guys who like to sort of swoop and be the protector, the you okay, hun guy mm. on Twitter. I've a bunch of those. Um, so, yeah, like, just to sort of reiterate my sort of initial point, I do think this article is a very important thing for that other reason of I genuinely have thought for the last six months that he was just misunderstood and it, it it got into the point where I'm like this this there isn't an article in the wings it would have come out by now you know it was a similar thing with Louis C.K. actually because that whole thing about him like in front of girls mm. that was a thing that was kind of like this almost urban legend in the alternative comedy community there was a guy who would do that and I was sure it would have been someone like Jim Norton or Doug Stanhope <laughs> like if it was going to be anyone yeah and then it turned out to actually be Louis C.K. I'm like oh f- and then he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I guess I guess my number's up. Yeah. He just retreated. It's It's been a very enlightening time, the, the sort of level of creepery. The other thing that I found a little bit irresponsible was how all of these issues have been laid on the doorstep of that great umbrella term, mental illness. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of stigma already kind of associated with that term but i think that something a bit more specific needed to be addressed there mental illness is a is a yeah it's a it's a minefield it really is you know so so many kind of absolutely you know a, bit, a little bit more clarity there would have uh maybe helped the case well at the end of the day i mean i've like i mentioned i've been a huge fan of Katie Rice's for a long time. It's hard to say this without sounding condescending. I feel really bad this happened. And it sucks because she seems like a very nice person and she is clearly a very talented artist. The thing that actually kind of got me like in my chest a bit was her comment about like how working with John Kay made her a better artist. And she's like, I'd rather not be a good artist. I think the, the, the direct quote is, I became a better artist by working for, for him. 
I'm not grateful for it, I wish I hadn't. I wish I were a worse artist now and I didn't have all this bullshit to deal with. Needless to say, at home, I have a uh, John Kay drawing in my office and I also have a Katie Rice painting. Guess which one of them is going in the f***ing garbage. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a very good point to say, you know, we've got an incredible amount to be thankful for from uh, Bird and Rice. Uh, we really have. And to uh, Ariana Lang, who put the piece together. Mm-hmm. I imagine from just the general response and the kind of scuttlebutt over the years, this is something that a lot of people woke up to who had worked, you know, in those circles and were probably like, oh, thank God someone has done this finally. I remember like sort of thinking like, oh, this, you know, this is it. This is the thing that, I, you know, we were all kind of waiting for to come out. And for some reason, it just wasn't coming out. Mm. There was some element of fear or just not wanting to to go back and and kick the hornet's nest like when i was kind of trying to get people onto that run and stimpy 25th anniversary podcast i got about half the people i approached and of the people who weren't willing to be on the podcast i didn't think it was that they had a problem with squiggly it's that they just didn't want to talk about it the experience and the word traumatized came up I, at least twice. Yeah. And I was very clear, and if you listen back to that, I'm not going to take that episode down or anything. I actually listened to it again over the weekend, and I think that it's, you know, my intention with it remains exactly the same. It was a celebration of the art of the show. It's mostly talking to the other people involved, uh, or various other people involved, that are people I think you should know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have great things to say about the experience and what they've done since. We, we wouldn't we wouldn't take down the the Chris Lucy interviews on. I mean, they, he appeared on podcast four and five with other guests, you know. So we don't want to really. Yeah, if you want to learn about cans without labels, go, go back to yeah, go back to two thousand twelve. See so that that was definitely kind of a thing in the air of you know. And there's there are people. This was in in the book as well. Like there are people that he took huge sums of money from that he never paid back and then proceeded to you know do a kickstarter and raise a shitload of money that must have been a hard thing to watch i certainly would have been resistant to donating at the time if i'd known that this was something that thad put up about um he has a, a facebook page for his book which recently had a second edition put out thad here i was interviewed for the buzzfeed article about john Cruz for lucy but not quoted which is all to the good as the brave women should be the focus. I was asked by Ariana Lang and now others why I didn't cover any of this in the book. Simple. During those days, it was hard to get anyone, male or female, on record to talk about John Kay in any capacity. Furthermore, it's a history of Ren and Stimpy, not a biography. Books about animation have enough ground to cover because you have to justify why you're writing about the films and the artistic process and personalities behind them. The tragedy of this is, of course, how much these women suffered, and you can bet there are more, but also that a fine team of artists that did excellent work are now blemished by this atrocity. Please remember that animation is the most collaborative of all art forms, and that the images of sad, depressed Ren and Stimpy you're sharing probably weren't drawn by John Kay anyway. So, that was Thad sort of weighing in on it. He also mentioned sort of elsewhere that, because uh, in the book it refers to John and Robin's relationship, but in a very sort of brief sense. It doesn't go into that, and I think people were kind of holding his feet to the fire by not bringing that up in the book. And he says that basically no one 
went into it that he interviewed on record. So yeah. I believe that. I have no reason not to. Uh, Kitty Rice and Robin Bird both have Patreons for what it's worth. I'm not going to be like, you got to immediately give the money for doing this. I think it's definitely worth checking them out as artists. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Katie, who I, I'm, I'm not actually familiar with Robin's art, but Katie, I think is great. If you're so inclined, they're out there and they're on Twitter and various places. You might just want to send them some support. Well, there you go. So this may be the last time Ren and Simpy's brought up on the Squiggly Podcast. <laughs> That's okay. I think we've had said all there is to say. Move it along. Move it <laughs> something, along. Uh, perhaps a bit more positive. What else is going on? Animation news, then, Ben, for the uh, for the week. One of the most exciting things to look forward to, uh, well, it's particular in my calendar, uh, is Cardiff Animation Festival, and it's announced its full programme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also... Um, <laughs> I don't know how you're feeling about this, but it's also given its 99 films in competition to the... <laughs> To the to the jury as well recently as well, um, which is exciting stuff. Ninety nine films in competition. Um, how are you working your way through them, Ben? It's been a long Easter weekend. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually on a couple of simultaneous uh, jury slash selection committees, so there are some I've seen already, and some I'm already quite familiar with. I'm enjoying it so far. I know that people are going to get a kick out of the screenings. Um, from the films, a lot of really, really good stuff there. And quite a lot of other stuff that's going to be worth your time. There's a exhibition, I'm uh, happy to say, for Chuck Steele. And there'll, there'll be a presentation as well, I think Mike will be there. And a preview, uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff, and a clip of the film that has never before been screened. If they're really lucky, it'll be one of my bits. <laughs> but I doubt that. It, my bits mostly come right at the end of the film, so... Cartoon Saloon presentation as well. Uh, Mark Mullery from Cartoon Saloon will be doing a behind-the-scenes for the breadwinner. Definitely worth a look. One that I'm actually really looking forward to, Laura kind of put me onto this, uh, Captain Morton and the Spider Queen, which I hadn't heard of before. This is, uh, I think, from Estonia and Belgium. It sounds like my favourite David Bowie album. Isle of Dogs. Uh, I'll be doing a thing about that. So do I. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, I get it. <laughs> ah, phonetics. And yes, of course, the uh, the program itself. Lots of fun. Well, you go to uh, cardiffanimation.com, mm-hmm. and they have all the particulars. Of course, there's an overview on squiggly.com if you want to check that out. Uh, yeah. Thursday the 19th to Sunday the 22nd of April. Looking forward to that one. The other thing, I guess, that Cardiff Animation Festival is involved in uh, this Anim 18 mm. series of events that's going to be uh, carrying on throughout the year as well. That's something I think also worth checking out. At this point, it's a pretty extensive program of events. The main launch will be in uh, uh, on the 20th of April at uh, Chapter for the Cardiff Animation Festival. Yeah, it's the same team that brought the uh, Roald Dahl uh, centenary. So they're working with animation this year, which is fantastic. Uh, so it's the Cardiff... Cardiff lot that have got um, events happening throughout the year um, at Belfast Film Festival, Flatpak Film Festival, Leeds Young Film Festival which has just happened, uh, Edinburgh International Film Festival which is in June Encounters uh, and uh, Manchester Animation Festival as well so there's an awful lot of events happening throughout the year um, celebrating animation really in its um, its various strands um, 
so yes, yeah, so there's a lot to look forward to. And we've got the 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 list, as you say, Ben, up on uh, up on Squiggly. So uh, it all kicks off on the 20th of April at the Cardiff Animation Festival. So something else pretty positive about uh, this year in animation. I hadn't realised this. I didn't think it was nearly uh, this long. Ten years of Simon's Cat. Yeah, ten years of Simon's Cat. Now, did it all begin with that one where the cat's waking him up in bed? Yes. Or did, Cat, right. Katmandu. That doesn't seem like that was ten years ago. There's something a bit evergreen about them, isn't it? That was one of those first videos that kind of permeated every Facebook feed. Yes. But no, 2008, I guess, Facebook was up and running there. Everyone was on it yeah. by then, so... It, it, it is that kind of mainstay now, isn't it? Like that kind of YouTube. And it's not aged because it's quite simple, isn't it? It's quite nice. Yeah. Uh, as a as a piece of character animation, as a piece of observational humour that everyone can get. Even though I'm very much a dog person, I still like Simon's Cat. I think it's a really nice, uh, well-observed bit of, uh, you know, lovely little films. It reaches the dog crowd. It reaches the dog crowd. What what higher achievement could they be for a cat animation? Only Garfield and Felix the cat have uh, managed to get that so far with me. So is Simon's cat, because I know that it's kind of changed hands a little bit over the years. Mm. And it had been with Disney, but then it wasn't? Yeah. Was that just like a temporary kind of... Yeah, they did some shorts for Disney for their right. their channel. I think, um, I think Disney like hoovering up talent a bit and going, hey... Disney stamp. Yeah. They're actually working on a Simon's Cat TV series at the moment, which is interesting. Ah, right on. Yeah, I don't know if that's known news, but they certainly talked about it during the evening uh, on stage, so we uh, we know that that's a thing that's happening now. It's been announced. So yeah, Simon's Cat is is continuing to uh, to the bigger and better things. You know, continuing to from a from a simple little animation to uh, to, to what it is now. It was originally a test. Um, just like a uh, Simon Tofield, the, the director who worked at Tandem Pictures, was just seeing if he could use Flash, seeing if he could get to grips with it and decided to test himself with a little bit of character animation because he's been doing character animation on adverts and uh, he worked on Flat World and, and all these kind of things uh, that Tandem had been producing for years and years. And then he thought, well, I need to learn how to use Flash. And I'll do a little film about a cat. And somebody put it online. They didn't put it on YouTube. They put it on another uh, uh, website. And it just went absolutely crazy. So, yeah, it's like people like cats, Ben. Who'd have thunk? Hmm. Did someone like else put it online and it go like viral, but he didn't like get yeah. to reap the rewards? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. That's happened to Robert Morgan recently. Oh, I saw that. He's, he's really pissed off about it. <laughs> he is. I mean, he's got every right to be. I mean, how many million hits did this guy get just from ripping Robert Morgan's... Um, uh, you know, because Robert sold his film, didn't he? He was trying to make a few quid, so he was selling it for the cheapest possible price you can get mm. uh, on Vimeo. And so what somebody did is they ripped it from Vimeo and stuck it straight on YouTube, and they've amassed something like, is it 6 million or 9 million views um, <laughs> of Bobby Yeah. It's all going to some other prick. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, just think that that's a filmmaker who, if, if that was monetized, you know, with advertisement or something, that would have represented tens of pence from YouTube <laughs> ad, ad revenue. So, but it's a shame when people, when, when people, I say people, monsters, nick 
uh, animators work and, uh, and stick them on their own YouTube video and then write in the disclaimer, I don't own this, this is, this is nothing to do with me, and think. My favourite's like, no copyright infringement intended. <laughs> well, what the f*** are you doing? <laughs> that's literally what you were doing. Yeah. Like, that's the entire intent of pressing upload of someone else's copyright. And you know that you've stolen copyright because you've mentioned stealing copyright in your statement. Meanwhile, by the way, now people who have followed Squiggly for many a year may remember that we have a, a video series go up on our YouTube channel. Uh, my motivation for which hasn't completely dwindled, I'll still do it from time to time, but I think, like, producing a certain number per year uh, is not really on the cards anymore because YouTube has made it such a joyless f***ing endeavour where you will be given, you will literally be provided with licensed clips for press usage from a popular movie or television show. It's literally been provided by Universal or 20th Century Fox or the Turner Broadcasting Corporation and you'll make a little documentary featurette about it, interspliced with insights from the people who made it, and blah, 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 blah. You upload it. It immediately gets flagged for copyright infringement. <laughs> and what would happen, like, back in the day when I'd, I'd be putting them up, like, quite a lot, like, it would get flagged a certain number of times within a month, and then they freeze the YouTube account, so you can't do anything on YouTube until you watch a special YouTube correctional video. <laughs> this is when it goes f***ing 1984. <laughs> so you're on this, like, speed awareness course, but for, like, uploading videos that you've got every right to upload. Yeah, I have, like, the f***ing email documentation. I have, like... And you could contest every one. And I, I, I do, and eventually they take the flag down. It's like, these are clips, like, for press purposes. Like, sure... Anyway... <laughs> but have you seen this video, YouTube Copyright School? No. This is an animated video, so it remains relevant to our uh, to our little platform here. Thank God. Created by the makers of a hilarious television show called Happy Tree Friends. All I can picture... I don't know what the guys who made that show look like. I'm just picturing them hanging on to like, the bags of cash YouTube must have given them to... I mean, I, I don't even think the show is that great, but this video is them lowering themselves to absolute f***ing prostitution. It's the the hilarious characters from their crazy universe where animals get beaten up and torn to shreds and stuff like that, but they're drawn in such a cutesy way. It's hilarious. Nothing violent happens in the video. There's nothing about this video that actually is consistent with the Happy Tree Friends brand. It's literally just using these characters as something I'm sure kids 10 years ago would have found relevant uh, to scold you and tell you why you're using YouTube wrong. Uh, are you uh, computer adjacent at all? I'm adjacent to a computer. Yes. Uh, let's see if we can punch this up, because I think this deserves a squiggly commentary. YouTube Copyright <laughs> School, it's, it's called. So you can find it on YouTube. You don't, you know, you're forced to watch it if... You know, you're in Dutch with YouTube, but you can just look it up on YouTube. God, here we go. It's got 7 million views, which is the uh, nearly the amount of copyright infringement that Robert Morgan's <laughs> experienced. Notice there's a slight disparity between likes and dislikes. <laughs> yes. 
So let me just find the, the bit that makes me want to vomit blood at them. Um, so it basically goes through, in a very patronizing way, all the things about copyright and stuff that you're supposed to adhere to when it comes to doing content. Let's just skim through a bit. You only get a few chances. If YouTube receives a valid notification of alleged copyright infringement from a copyright holder for one of your videos, the video will be removed in accordance with the law. You'll be notified via email and in your account. And you'll get a strike. A strike? If oh YouTube goodness. finds you're a repeat offender, you'll get banned for life. Oh, that, this is a bit. Here's an idea. Why not make your own video? Suck my c <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> I made my... <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's absurd, isn't it? This is, I think, just a prime example of why the YouTube system is so fundamentally kind of flawed in that there is no... It is a kind of lawless... It's automated a lot of it as well. I mean, we, we came into uh, trouble from uh, when we did the festival because we got permission off all the filmmakers uh, who did the VR shorts to produce, uh, reproduce their work and put it on our own uh, Manchester Animation Festival channel. So we got an email from a director... We got an email from the client who uh, produced the work, who the work was produced for, and we got an email from the musician. But say the musician uh, is working for, um, let's say, Sony, for example. Mm -hmm. Sony pay a automated service to, you know, absolutely scour the internet looking for instances that that music has been used. So it's automated. Yeah. So your conversations that you have saying, well, here's here's my uh, message from the actual person who wrote this music, giving permission to broadcast it, uh, and from the client that you are working for, Sony, saying that they're okay, we're okay to reproduce it. So the person that you're working on behalf of says you're it's okay to do so, and they still say no. Yeah. And it's absolutely infuriating. Because you just want to share this work, and no doubt they want their work sharing as well. So in the end, we just went to Vimeo because it's miles better. <laughs> That's the way to go. But you know, like you say, it's, you're denying yourself literally pennies. But hey, yeah. So anyway, at any rate, someone who was able to kind of <laughs> make a good <laughs> get a good deal out of uh, YouTube visibility, Mr. Cyber Tofil. Yes, absolutely. Now he's someone who also did a crowdfunding campaign and actually delivered. <laughs> Which is a nice, refreshing thing to see. Maybe it's because he's maybe nice and could work with the people who he worked with, and uh, everyone enjoyed working on it. That was an interesting one when the when the Kickstarter came, campaign for Simon's Cat was going out. So there was a lot of complaints uh, on the internet of people who said that they were asking for too much money, mm. whereas all they were doing was paying people fairly. Yeah, <laughs> and and they made a fantastic film as well. Which is great. It is just nice to see people actually kind of following through and, and doing what they set out to do because they have planned it. I know that the people involved in that camp are all professional and they care about the brand. They care about the audience enjoying the brand, but not also having it just be this kind of brand thing. Yes. Like I think that franchises that have been around for ages, like Garfield, 
just you know my great depth of thinking go to the other cartoon cat <laughs> garfield is a, such a brand in the sense i don't think the guy who used to do it even does it anymore i think it's all like clip art at this point that a robot does probably in san diego somewhere but i remember there was a time when i was a kid you know and i this must have been before stuff like ren and stimpy came into my life but i thought garfield was a cut-up and I really enjoyed that universe of, you know, Garfield and Odie and <laughs> little Nurmel. Uh, and i tell you one thing, Steve. Garfield did not like Mondays. Oh, no. Not entirely sure why not. There was definitely uh, sort of remember. And there was the cartoon series, which was pretty unwatchable, um, <laughs> looking back at it. But at the time, I thought that was great. Did you ever have the TV specials? We had them on video a lot. We had Babes and Bullets, which was a film noir Garfield, oh, yeah. which was really weird because it was it was like a proper film noir, but it was Garfield going around looking for a killer. I had that as as a comic, and it was like it was released as Garfield, but it was drawn in this really weird way where it was Garfield, but like a photorealistic cat. I guess it's, so. I, I don't know if I ever saw the animated version. There was also did he look like Garfield in the? Yeah, it was actually Garfield, but uh, uh, you know, it was it was. Really kind of odd. They also did um, the the Nine Lives of Garfield. I think it was. I think it was called something different in America, but it was the there was Caveman Garfield, and then there was Garden of Eden Garfield, and then there was and he went through time basically with with all these different Garfields. And so they they did a version of Garfield where uh, he wasn't a cartoon character; it was more realistic. And and in the end, he meets God. Uh, maybe I'm confusing it then because I I yeah. I had I had that as a comic, definitely. Yeah. Oh no, Garfield's Nine Lives did have one. Is it is it Jim Davis we got on the podcast, or is it <laughs> <laughs> Simon Tofield? There's room in this crazy animation world for more than one cartoon. <laughs> Dag damn it! So yes, uh, it, here in the future, well, the present, um, Garfield has has moved on to be this kind of behemoth thing. Simon's cat, I think, it's you know, it still generally kind of maintains its identity. I know that a lot more animators now work on it. Do you feel like it sort of retained its kind of core feel? Yeah. Like, does it still feel like that kind of Simon Terfield's original sort of style? Yeah, and I think that's basically down to Simon's always, you know, on top of it, basically. He's always kind of drawing. He still draws the character. He still, you know, passes his ideas through to the crew and... You know that the author is still very much runs throughout this thing. Is you know is very prolific in his um, uh, in his kind of artistry, Simon, um, and he passes it all through to the team. You know, a very close knit team uh, who all uh, seem to enjoy working on it, which is nice. Good to know. Mm. Good to know. So there's the TV series upcoming. Is there any other irons in the fire? You know, Simon's cat's obviously all over Facebook. They've got the Facebook stickers, and then there's the um, uh, there's games and all that kind of stuff. So this cat is really kind of going for the... There's no stranger to the world of merchandise and to, to reaching the sort of wider world. Um, I, don't, I don't get the sense that there's anything cynical about this. I don't think there's a much in, in, in terms of um, just doing it for the sake of money or just doing it for the sake of... Um, uh, it, it's meeting demand rather than... Well, that's it, isn't it? But it's also, it's not that Simon's chained to a desk. He enjoys drawing. He enjoys doing this. He enjoys uh, the character and he enjoys exploring these things because, you know, it's based on his own cat. And so it's his own his own cats and his own love of animals. So, you know, it works. Shall we hear from Simon Tofield? Yeah. Reflecting on 10 years of Simon's cat. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, it's worth pointing out that this this uh, interview took place on stage. It's an edited version of uh, the the event they took to to highlight um, ten years of of Simon's Cat. So if you hear a kind of uh, a thronging crowd in the background or or, or people. People laughing. It was quite a public interview. One of the weirdest interviews I've ever done, but uh, one of the most enjoyable as well. We won't make this uh, too formal. More of a Simon's chat than a uh, than anything too rigid. Yeah. Um, I notice we've got a, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A, a drawing board behind us, and it, and it would be a shame for that not to go to use. Have you got a pen with you? I have got some pens on Good me. Good stuff. Yes. Right. Okay. I think uh, I think everybody wants to see this. This is the bit where, uh, which should have been rehearsed, maybe. There you go. So, Simon, do your thing. <coughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. I suppose uh, it might be a good, uh, good idea to start the questions for this Q&A, rather than just forcing you to draw. Uh, so, I suppose the first question is, yeah, where does this uh, feline fascination come from? Um, well, I've always loved cats. Uh, ever since I was a uh, small boy and I've all, I, I begged my mum to take home a kitten that I found in my sister's stable and uh, my mum said no, 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 not, not having cats in the house they claw the curtains they wee under the, under the table they make a mess and then, you know, yeah, they do and that's what I make <laughs> my living from now so, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, but finally she... Uh, she gave in after months of me sort of begging, a little nine-year-old boy, getting whingy. And, uh, and I took my first cat home when I was nine, and, uh, and, and, that's, and I just kind of... Uh, I've always kind of understood sort of visual language, I suppose, and so I've just kind of watched cats and just sort of uh, kind of understood them. And uh, my friends all made jokes about me being, you know, sort of a cat whisperer type person, but... Uh, just knowing kind of how, what they were thinking and their body language, and uh, and then luckily later on in life, I have um, always sort of liked to draw, and I managed to sort of combine the two. Uh, you know, obviously my cartooning with uh, my sort of knowledge of their kind of you know body language really, and, and their mannerisms, and I think that's the secret why a lot of people like the like the films because they can recognise their own pets, you know, their own sort of mannerisms in my cartoon, in their own animals, their own pets at home, and I think it endears them to them, and, uh, and they feel like they own the cat. They feel quite, um, you know, quite protective of him, especially if someone says anything nasty on, you know, the comments, they suddenly get a tidal wave of people, sort of cr- crush them, and we can just step back, and I'm staying out of this one. So, uh, yeah, so uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of where, where my fascination with cats came from way back then. Yeah. A little tortoiseshell, actually a calico um, called Shelley, Sort of, obviously, because it's uh, tortoiseshell. <laughs> Nine-year-old boy, you know. <laughs> so. so, there's a lot of your own uh, cats in in the cats. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about the uh, the inspiration for uh, the, the cats that inspired the cats. Um, well, obviously, the um, everyone knows the story of Hugh now waking me up, doing his little puggling uh, on my chest in the morning, and sort of gave me an idea to do the Katmandu film, which kind of launched it all, really. Um, the to the mouth I get from um, uh, what, another little calico cat called um, oh, Jess, and she was, she was always whining for food, and uh, 
so I just kind of that was that was obviously her trait really is of kind of and being beggy and sort of and, but not just food um, it sounds it, it was also for attention and fuss she loved to fuss and just trying to get my attention all the time and what to see sleep on my lap and if I was going to bed she got really happy and ran up the stairs and so she was real needy um, who else Teddy Teddy the big uh, I found uh, I heard a story about a little kitten being left in a box and I had three cats at that time and I thought I don't need any more cats because you know, I thought three's enough um, but then I heard a story about a little kitten found in a box and I thought oh, and it lived with me for sort of three days and I thought I've got to go and get this little thing so uh, I went along and, and adopted this little black, fluffy kitten. And uh, then he sort of became Teddy, who's the little grey kitten. And that's why he's all got sort of big, long hair, because obviously he's got long hair, which is great. It makes him different from Simon's cat, because obviously he's got a different sort of profile and stuff. Um, and then Maisie, Maisie's actually become a character in her own right, actually in the sort of the universe. She didn't quite make it onto the uh, drawing, but she's, uh, but she's you know, copying Maisie's... Uh, antics and she's really playful but she's so big she doesn't quite know how to play so she ends up kind of hurting the other cats by being just by being big and playful and she can be a bit grumpy sometimes but uh, so they've all kind of uh, managed to get get into the universe you know and it's they're a great well to sort of to, to you know to uh, look at and get inspiration from so uh, obviously doodling creatures and animals, something that comes completely natural to you. Yeah. And I think, I suppose, uh, in terms of the endearment with the audience, there's been so many cats that have been animated. You think about, you know, from the very beginning of animation history, you've got Felix the cat through to Garfield, Tom and Jerry, all these. But they're all, they're no strangers to standing on, on two legs and hitting each other with frying pans and all that kind of ridiculous stuff. Yeah. But the thing with, with Simon's cat is that what the audience recognize in their own uh in their own pets uh and, and and the other creatures in the garden and that's i suppose the uh the beauty of it and you you have uh you line animators or realize some animators in tonight who've worked yeah. on and helped you through the series oh, yeah, as yeah. well that you line them up with uh the uh the particular episodes yeah. as well well it, it's nice if you if you you know get to know your animators you know what they that they like you know emma with her fish and uh, Laura with the bunny, bunny rabbits. And, uh, and if you've got a film coming up, you think, well, this has got to be a, a Laura film or it's got to be an MFA because they, you've got, um, you can watch stuff on YouTube. Um, that's a great source for sort of watching and getting mannerisms. But it, you, it, to actually understand the, the, the stuff, you just can't pick up. You've got to live with these animals and, and get to know what they do. And it's always good to have, have someone who's you know, got an, an insight into that and to do something, a little extra movement you think, oh yeah, that's perfect. My 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 fish does that, and I never noticed. So that's the kind of that's the secret, and that's kind of what I do with a cat. You know, um, so people always say, oh my cat does that, and but as soon as you animate it, it becomes funny. Whereas in actually the cat sort of puggling isn't isn't that funny, but as soon as you animate it, it becomes it gets a laugh. So because people recognise it, and uh, so that's it's looking for the extra details really. Yeah, excellent. I understand you, you're never too far away from a sketchbook. You're always drawing on the train on the way in, and you're always, yeah. every, every scrap of uh, uh, everything you draw is, is, is kind of put into the, uh, yeah. the billions of people that are demanding yeah. uh, uh, more Simon's cats. I'm, I'm kind of hinting to you to, to do some drawing. Yeah, Simon. well, that, that's, that's what not going to happen. Can we get, can we get, what would you like? What would you like? Kitten. Kitten, an elephant, an elephant kitten, a uh, hybrid. 
Uh, kitten, okay. Um, well, let me have a go. So, uh, there you are. We'll start with two big eyes. The little... Uh, it could be the cat now, you see. Could be, it could go either way. And then te- got Teddy's big fluffy cheeks. So that makes him... And then the other thing about kitten, he's got little tiny legs see, and quite big paws. He's got that little baby sort of features. Little fluffy front. Little cute back leg. And then tiny little fluffy tail. That's the other thing about kittens. Is when they... The profile of a kitten is little tiny legs. And then you have this little tiny tail that sticks up like that. And that's kind of... There he is. That's kind of basic, uh, basic kitten for you. Come on, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> They're not, not my best work. There you are. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I think I think all animators should have a crowd of people around the desk, you know, going woo yeah. after every drawing. Yeah. I think I'd really help. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Um, I understand that the the entire uh, we're here ten years after uh, yeah, Simon's Cat made its debut uh, online, but I, I understand that was almost by mistake. Yes. It was um, a test, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, people let me not know I'm not a very technical person, and uh, I wouldn't know uh, you, the way around YouTube at all, really, personally. But um, I made a short little film, and um, it, uh, we didn't, I didn't really know what to do with it, so I put it on a showreel, and then uh, that showreel was seen by an American company who were testing a website they were designed. And this little short film was just perfect, what they needed. And so they asked if they could borrow it. I said, yeah, sure, you know, because it was doing nothing on my Cheryl. And it was kind of of goodwill, really, and it's kind of paid me back. So I said, yes, fine, you know, great. If if it's going to help you, go go ahead. And they used it, and then they they phoned back the next week and said, you've got to do something with this because it's crashed our website. We've had um, 35,000 hits in two days, it's gone down twice. You know, it's, it's completely killing, killing our website. And so we, we took it back and we, um, we had a meeting um, about what to do with it and we decided that maybe we could make a company out of this, out of this cat. But, um, and, but I tried to put it back onto YouTube because no one knew who I was because it, didn't, it wasn't titled, it didn't have a name. And when, I, when we put it back onto YouTube, there was like Wake Up Kitten and Alarm, Alarm Cat, and they had like 8 million or 11 million hits each. And my little cat came in, and it was named and titled Simon's Cat because no one even noticed it. It was too far down. So I thought, well, the only way to really allow people to sort of see my work is to make another film. So then I made Let Me In. And then, of course, that people said, oh, this is the same guy I did the first one. So, and then, then, we could, then we were off. And then we could start to make more films, and uh, and we were start to get going. Then, uh, as a as a creator and somebody who's who's having to uh, keep a billion people happy or a billion viewers happy, um, which is sounds rather terrifying. Is it, it a billion? Is it billion? Uh, a billion views? Uh, I, I believe yeah. that's the that's the stat, or over a billion yeah. views. Yeah. Sorry. Nearly a billion. Nearly okay. A billion. Not that's quite. Two not, billion. Two billion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, 
what are we doing here? 30 anyway, billion. But, uh, <laughs> so um, it, it, it must be a, a tremendous feeling, but to get the feedback from the fans as well, which obviously led to uh, the uh, simple uh, the test for yourself testing to use some software for, for, to bigger and bigger yeah. goals. So you got the books, uh, yeah. you've got off to the vets when you uh, yeah. the first full color uh, yeah. uh, film. Uh, what's next? What house? Well, we're always trying new things, and that's that's the the, the nice thing is we're we're we could just stop with the black and whites, but we're kind of always we're dipping our fingers in the colour, and, and a lot of people moan, oh, that's you know we we like prefer it black and white, and but actually it's quite brave, and and it, and it works, and that's helped us no end when we come into doing our illustrations for the calendars and the merchandise. It all, it, it, like I said, be drawing on the train, none of it's wasted, so it, it, we kind of use everything, so it's quite good. Um, What's next? We've got uh, long form um, in, in development, so we're, we're trying to, you know, get a new kind of type of program. It's a bit longer, so rather than short little snappy uh, black and whites, we'll have a sort of a proper scripted, proper sort of animated comedy show, um, which I'll obviously is a bit bit scary for me because I won't be sort of over it like a kind of, but um, I'll have, my job will be making sure that the cat is still not lost in all the kind of hilarious comedy lines so uh, I'll be kind of making sure he's still got a place in the, or all that lot but that'll be scripted and you know it's a different sort of animal really but that's really exciting and um, we've had amazing success with the with the apps have done incredibly well I mean I've always hoped that the um, all this imagination all the um, ideas would be um, would find a home and they've really fitted into these apps you could play play through the universe really going through the different gardens and meet all the different characters and and the fans have really um really liked all that and and, and so that's been going well and so that's and i really enjoyed doing those backgrounds and i love i love the uh, imagination i can put into the app the apps are great because you can you have a, a, a an idea one week on a train sitting and going oh great i can do a do a zoo you know and you go for the zoo and have all the designing all the animals and then literally the next week, there it is, you know, and, and, and they're all animating and they're moving and people are playing it and, you know, saying nice, and that's really rewarding. Um, yeah, so and that's just a few things that, that, that's been uh, happening. So it's very exciting. Fantastic. Uh, I've got some questions from uh, Twitter, but I understand we've got people in the audience that would probably want to ask questions as well. There is a microphone going around, so I'm going to ask this, this uh, uh, Twitter question. And then, uh, if you can all put your hands up, wait for the microphone to come towards you. All right, okay. Well, maybe we can yell it, uh, yell the questions all at once. That would be entertaining, wouldn't it? Oh, there is a microphone. Fantastic. Thanks, Edwin. Thank you very much. Thanks, um, Edwin. So, <laughs> um, the uh, first question from, uh, from uh, Twitter, Anne-Marie uh, Hailman asks, uh, did you know how popular it would all become? Um, no, not really. Uh, no. Um, no, there you go. Next question. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't say there'd be good questions. Just, yeah. uh, d- no. How, I mean, how could I? I mean, it's, it's gone so crazy. I mean, here, like 10 years. I mean, I, I, I used to sort of talk about it and sort of dream about it. And I used to say, if I can just get to 10 years, that's me done. I just want to get to 10 years. And now here I am. And actually, it's You're not kind of, done. It's, and we're not done yet. No, we're sort of just going up. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's uh, it's amazing. I just thought, right, if I can just get to ten years, I'll, I'll be happy. I can, I can just, whatever happens there, I'll be in a factory, you know, and I'll be kind of, you know, but I'll be pleased that I made ten years. But uh, yeah, but we're we're just going from strength to strength, so it's great. 
I suppose uh, uh, going on from that question, what what point did you know that it was? Blimey, this is big. This is. Uh, I think when um, when Canongate came along and said, "Would you like to do a book?" and because um, I'd made a sort of about two or three films, and they'd got you know good good hits and people were enjoying them. But that had always been a kind of a dream of mine to be an illustrator. I didn't know how I'd get into the, you know, how I'd do it or how it, it all seemed like too hard to sort of crack the industry because you had like, you know, I wasn't really an illustrator. I just used to doodle cartoons. And um, so when someone came along and said, we want you to draw your, your stuff in a book, I, I thought it was amazing. And I, I thought, and then when the book did well, I thought, okay, so the, the films are doing well and the book's done well and I thought, okay, maybe, I, maybe we, we've got something here. And uh, yeah, that's kind of when I started to think, yeah, this, is, this could be my career. Yeah. Fantastic. Do we have any questions in the audience? Any hands up for questions? We're just too thorough. Is that where it is? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll go to Twitter, unfortunately, for another, uh, another blinder. Um, any thoughts on more animals? Where's Simon's zoo? In the you app. Even, even, <laughs> yeah, you even answered that one earlier yeah, on. Yeah, it's in the app. Yeah, any, um, any kind of uh, uh, thoughts of continuing on to different, different areas, perhaps? Well, that, I mean, I had to keep going on about the app, but that is my kind of... Uh, that's what I really enjoy, because I can go... If there's an animal I really want to draw, like a Scottish wildcat, or um, with the app I can say, right, now we're going to Scotland, and we go through the, you know, they go through the Scottish moorland, there's snowy owls... And there's a, the kitten sitting on top of a stag, and there's you know there's the big Scottish wildcats, and and uh, you know getting these guys to colour them right, and you know it's just the attention to detail, and uh, yeah, so that's what I really enjoy. All that kind of I love the nature, getting the nature into the the drawings, the books, the apps, the films. Um, and the good thing about the the colour stuff is you can get them looking very very close. You know, rather, rather than owls just flying across. You've suddenly got a snowy owl flying across because it's suddenly it's white, and so you know things like that, having fun with colour, and that's why colour is is a great. Because Simon's cat's great in black and white, but with colour, the whole universe is opens up. Not so much him because I've kept him traditionally white because he was born black and white, and kind of he stands out on a colour black gown. But the the secondary characters like the little Jack Russell, for example. By putting the, the the brown on his ears and on on his back, he's suddenly he's definitely a, a Jack Russell, and uh, things like that. So colours are really great for that. Mm. So were you always itching to put colour into the, uh, the the shorts you were making? Um, I didn't think about it straight away, but because I love birds, what I what I was sort of struggling with with was I would do lots of birds, but you wouldn't know what birds they were. They were just birds. But as soon as you put colour on them. You suddenly got a bullfinch, you know, a blue tit, great tit. You've got different different types of birds rather than just having a little fat, cuddly, fluffy thing flying along. You suddenly go right, that's a bullfinch, and uh, so that's when I really start enjoy enjoying colour, getting getting the detail in there. Fantastic. Have we any questions? Oh, questions down. Oh, uh, blimey! Who put their hand up first? <laughs> it's like a quick draw. Um, let's go this way. We'll start this way and work across. So I think there's about 71 or 77, either one of those, of Black and White episode, which is your absolute favourite. I know you've drawn all of them. That's like could be all, but uh, I you get to pick them. one. No, uh, um, I think the, uh, one of the last ones I, I animated, and I think partly that's partly why, because it's kind of like one I enjoyed. And it was very close to my heart at the time, because um, 
Teddy was quite a new kitten and it's double trouble with Teddy and the cat chasing and that was kind of happening in the house while I was sort of doing it so it was quite close and getting all those that kind of brotherly love established between them they don't hate each other they're kind of like a brothers they kind of annoy each other but so I think double trouble was is probably my favorite um because uh, I enjoyed doing it and um it, we had a it was for a book launch and the, it went well and I just remember the night being very good and and so yeah that's probably my favorite and guess what? That's the one I actually watched last night when I found I was coming to this event. So, <laughs> Best one. Best one. <laughs> good question. Good answer. Um, Dan? Hi, Simon. Hi. Hi, Dan. We met again at last. Got a... <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a little boy now. Yes. A little kid. Yeah. Uh, so the relationship between the kid and the cat, is there any mileage and any scripts there between um, your little boy? Yeah, they, well, as you know, Canon Gate wanted me to do baby bedlam straight away, but I, I said, let me have a baby first, and then I'll, <laughs> then I can learn what babies are like, and boy, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, here we are, ten years later. No, um, uh, yes, uh, yeah, I mean, there's endless, there's endless gags there, and, and uh, it's because it's just non-stop. I just, I just think, God, there's a, there's a gag there. But what I can, well, the good thing about the cat is, but I always think of the cat as being like a naughty two-year-old so though he's a cat he's got a kind of two-year-old mentality like he you know he might break something because he's he's stroppy or something so if i see james doing something a bit like that and go right yeah that's uh, that's going in the cat that that little bit there you know you know so don't do that oh you know he's done it and uh, so it's kind of the, but yeah it's just you just hoover up all this kind of gag material and then just put it into the cat really but yeah that, i mean that would be funny um yeah, seeing, seeing, before he gets too big, obviously, so he's still quite young and cute, and then the cat have that sort of toddler relationship. I don't think the cat would like him very much. James, at the moment, has this thing where he's just been taught how to pick the cats up safely. He, he, rather than just going, ah, he kind of... He just, and we would say, support the back, support... So he holds them, and he says, look, Daddy. And I go, oh, great. And then he, then he, then he starts walking off, and you go, oh, no, no. <laughs> So uh, he, we're going through that at the moment, and, and you've, got to, you've, got to be, you've got to keep your eye on him because he, he does like to pick them up, and um, you kind of think, I think he's, she's probably had enough now. So, um, but, uh, yeah, there's endless material there, so, and that would be great sort of visually because you wouldn't have to put any talking. It would all be visual, visual comedy. Yeah, and for many more years to come. Yeah. <laughs> Chink. Cheers. Yeah. 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 The question? Hi, Simon. Um, thanks, obviously, for all the fun you've given us over the years. In terms of right across the spectrum, from comics to fine art, cartoons and a lot, who would you cite as your influences in a positive sense? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can never remember his name. It feels terrible. I just got, um, farewell. He, he's, he's most famous for doing, in the 70s, lots of little fat ponies with little sort of fat kids right, trying to ride these ponies and falling off. And there was a whole... You couldn't go into any second-hand store without seeing some vase or cup or some of these, these little vignettes on. But um, I, I, I loved the detail in his backgrounds. He used to do these amazing uh, trees and the ivy and all, and all, the, all the, the details. And, and, and then when I started to look, look at his work closely, he, he'd actually done loads of books. And very close to me, he'd done books on nature... Um, all the different sort of horses. So he's obviously he obviously knew his 
stuff, a bit like me and Cats. He must have been a sort of countryman, you know. He, he knew um, all his horses and, and, and all the sort of stuff like that. But he'd also done uh, books on angling, uh, on fishermen, and different sort of, and all the, all the all visual gags of different types of anglers and fishermen and things. Also, he'd done a book on cats, which I, which I didn't know. Um, so he had this huge sort of range of, of stuff. But, it, but, but I remember him from the 70s doing these amazing detailed you know, vistas, you know, with trees, really realistic trees with like a little cartoon horse in it and stuff. So, I, I mean, that, yeah, back then, that really, that really uh, sort of affected me, really. Any drawing requests? No drawing requests. <laughs> yeah, Tandem is full of, of boxes of my old cartoons. <laughs> Everyone would get a cartoon. I don't, I don't really do that anymore. Maybe I should start it up again. Maybe it's, um, I think I'm too busy. <laughs> Thank you. Any? Teddy in the rain. <laughs> Teddy in the rain. Teddy in the rain. What do you mean the... Well, Teddy was... Teddy was obviously the long-haired little kitten. But when he... I, don't, I think it must have been his hair, because he was he, he's immune to rain. And so he used to, he used to go in the rain, and when he used to come in, he'd be like this. <laughs> like a little... Like a little walking mop. <laughs> and then, uh, happy as Larry, just loved it, loved the rain. Sit out, sit out in the rain for ages. The other cats would be inside looking at him like he was completely crazy. But he's completely immune to the rain. He used to love it. There he is. Looking a bit like Dougal there. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. Um, we could yell animals at you all night long. Yeah. But it's now four in the morning. You've been drawing for so long. Yeah. Um, and we've got so much more to get through. We've got yeah. raffle. We've got so oh, many yes. other things to get on with. But um, thank you very much for, uh, for, the, for the chat, Simon. I'd like, please, a massive round of applause, please, uh, for Simon <laughs> thank Tofield. You. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Simon Tofield speaking with Steve on stage at the 10th anniversary celebration for Simon's Cat. I hope you enjoyed it. Sorry to all the people who tuned into this episode of the podcast for Simon's Cat and got an hour of <laughs> the sexual predator thing. <laughs> but there you go. Yes. That's the, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, it is indeed, yes. <laughs> if Simon's Cat need help, uh, they are on YouTube. <laughs> if you type Simon's Cat into YouTube, you can join their nearly 5 million uh, subscribers. I think they're nearly up to a billion views as well, Ben. Quite a lot. Yeah, quite a lot. And I don't think they've had to watch that god-awful video that we had to endure earlier <laughs> on in the podcast uh, either, because it's all their own work, which is fantastic. Tremendous. Well, here's to ten more years. Absolutely. That's all from us this episode. Before we scurry away into the darkness, we have a couple of plugs to get through. So if you're a fan of all things 1980s, then you might want to tune in to the Adventures in VHS podcast where in the latest episode, host Noel Meller delves into the history of the Transformers, with special guests, including my good self, uh, picking apart the franchise. Uh, you can reach that podcast and many others where all things 1980s are explored over on adventuresinvhs.com. 
As mentioned before, we'll be hanging around the Cardiff Animation Festival, which takes place at Chapter, Cardiff's creative hub, from the 19th to the 22nd of April. Visit cardiffanimation.com for the full programme. And during the festival, I'll be hosting the Animators Brunch Q&A sessions that'll take place Saturday and Sunday morning in the Cinema Foyer at 10.30am. Be sure to swing by to get a chance to meet and grill some of the filmmakers in competition. Also on the Saturday night, I'll be hosting Making Isle of Dogs, where some of the key members of Wes Anderson's amazing new feature film's crew will be shedding light on how it all came together. That'll be at 8.45pm in Chapter Cinema 1. It'll be preceded by a screening of the film itself at 6.30. Highly recommended. Also worth mentioning that on Thursday, April 19th, the festival will host an industry day featuring a variety of panels, including Getting to Market at 2pm, where I'll be speaking alongside Helen Brunston, Hugh Walters and John Rennie. Also that day will be case studies and networking opportunities, including your charts, to get some one-on-one time with an expert panel of children's TV commissioners. If you're interested, industry day and festival passes are available from the website. Once again, that's cardiffanimation.com. In the more immediate future, for you Hungarians out there, my film Klimenthrow will once again be screening alongside Squiggly Features writer Laura Beth Cowley's film Boris Norris at the Budapest Children's Film Festival Cine Mira. That'll be running from April 6th to the 8th, and the full program info should be available at kidfilmfestival.hu. I'm also pretty stoked to say that The Adventures of Bertram Fiddle, the point-and-click game made and animated by our pals at Rumpus Animation and starring me in a variety of peripheral voice roles, just got itself released on the Nintendo Switch. So you can pick that up over at nintendo.co.uk. It's great fun! And creator Seb Burnett spoke with us about the making of it in one of our aforementioned Lightbox videos a while back if you want to learn more. The game's also one of the major case studies of my book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, which brings me to my final plug, in that said book is available from crcpress.com at 20% off throughout April. So there's something for those of you who like a bargain. In fact, if you order two or more CRC Press books, you get 25% off, which is better than a kick in the pants. Don't forget to keep checking out squiggly.com, follow us on Twitter at squiggly, Instagram at Squiggly Animation, and like Squiggly Magazine on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell, and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. I think that's everything. Bye-bye. Happy animating. <laughs>